Hello, and thank you for listening to the Math Teacher Educator Journal podcast. The Math Teacher Educator Journal is co-sponsored by the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators and the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics. My name is Eva Thanheiser, and I'm talking today with Jennifer Roof, who is an assistant professor of mathematics education in the College of Education at the University of Oregon. We will be discussing the article, Visions of the Possible, Using Drawings to Elicit and Support Visions of Teaching Mathematics published in the March 2020 issue of the Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal. We will begin by summarizing the main points of the article and discuss in more depth the lessons she shared in the article, her successes and challenges, and how these lessons relate to her other work. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Ava, and happy birthday to you. Thank you. All right, so let's get started into the questions. We always start with a very brief summary of the article, including the results. So this article actually came out of work that I was doing as a doctoral student. And we, at at the time, were collecting drawings from pre-service teachers that were designed to encapture the, the title of the task at the time was to draw the quintessence of teaching. And this work evolved from project designed by Jeannie Lithcote, who was a science teacher educator there at the time and previously at Columbia. So I owe a lot to Jeannie's ongoing work in this field. So to cut to the point, one of the pre-service teachers that I was working with produced this before drawing and an after drawing, and they're the first two drawings you'll see in the article. And I saw this stark change between what began as this idea of teaching is telling with students sitting in rows as passive recipients taking notes. And by the end, you see students clustered around a table full of manipulatives and the teacher is now folded into the conversation. But when I ask the teacher what she's doing, I'll call her Cherie. She says that she's basically facilitating discussion and that the students are driving. It's very much student-centered inquiry-driven learning. And this was really exciting to me as someone who was learning to become a math teacher educator after many years of being a math teacher. I was like, wow, so if we have an instrument here that shows this much shift in what somebody thinks it means to teach and to learn mathematics just across this time that they're in the program, I'd like to see what more we can get from it. I turned it into a study and I looked at the drawings from the next cohort and in order to get more data, I coupled the drawings with an interview protocol. So I got a sense of what the artist meant for their drawings to represent. This was across a one-year master's program? Yes, correct. So the students came in in uh, mid-June and they graduated in early June the following year. And you had them draw a picture at the beginning and at the end and then you noticed those big shifts and you studied those. Yes, that's it. All right, I will get to it later, but I just smiled now because I was imagining in the article you talk about how you laid out all those pictures in the living room Mm -hmm. and uh, looked at them. All right. So who should read this article? If you're a math teacher educator and you're interested in capturing what your pre-service teachers care about and what they believe the roles of 
math teachers and math students to be. This is a useful instrument. It's a nice piece of triangulating data because drawings sometimes reveal things that we don't get out of conversations or papers with our students. And can you talk a little bit, I don't know if you mentioned that in your summary, what was the prompt for the drawing? The drawings in this particular study were to draw the quintessence of teaching. And like I said, this was Jeannie Lithcote's work, and Jeannie had some very specific lead-ups to how she got to what she considered to be quintessence. So there's a lot of work around defining that particular word. In my experience, quintessence seems to be a bit of a flashpoint for people. They're not quite sure what the word means. It feels very fancy. So across the years that I've been using versions of this task, I've modified it and I've gravitated to uh, Karen Hammerness's work. And Karen was actually a part of the program as well. She did her postdoc there. And she worked with Jeannie Lithcote and Rachel Lotan. So all of these people were, they were doing the foundational work that led to this article. Karen talks about teacher vision. And you're going to see that show up in the conceptual framing of the piece alongside noticing. So if you think of vision, it is basically, especially for new teachers, what is it that they envision their teaching practice being like? And then how are they going to get from where they are in current practice to what they think is going to best support their students? So your prompt for the paper was this quintessence, is that what you're saying? So for the data in the paper, it was for the, because this was uh, actually data that was collected as part of their teacher education program, they were still using Jeannie's prompt, which was okay. to draw the quintessence of teaching. I now talk about with my students about their vision for teaching, and I specifically ask them to think, to envision an optimal day and, you know, like a really good day in their math classroom or someone's math classroom. What, are the teach what is the teacher doing? What are the students doing? Can they please draw that and then write a brief description so I understand what I'm really trying to get at is what's the role of the teacher? What are the roles of the students? So there's two aspects. One is this vision of teaching, but then it's also related to the math classroom. Correct. Okay. And to link it with existing threads in math teacher educator, I looked also at how MTE has framed noticing across several issues. And so both noticing and teacher vision have in common this idea of a metaphorical lens. What is the way that math teachers look both in reflection and in planning at their practice and their students' practice? Thank you. So what is the important problem that you're addressing with this paper? When our students come to us to become mathematics teachers. They are coming out of their own apprenticeships as students of mathematics. And so what we know is that though things are changing, we have a long history in the U.S. mathematics education being primarily transition or sorry, transmission based where teachers tell people how to do mathematics and students absorb they're very passive. They're meant to write notes, practice problems, and then regurgitate them on tests. And that this doesn't tend to lead toward deep, flexible, robust understanding of mathematics. It's not really getting at the conceptual pieces as much. So how do you take someone who is infused with that as their model of teaching and learning mathematics? And we often have our students as pre-service teachers for one year. How do you shift that vision in the time that you have 
wouldn't it be nice if you knew kind of where they were at coming in and had an instrument for assessing where they're at on their way out? And this drawing task is one of several tools that a math teacher educator could use. So the problem of practice really was, how do I get a sense of what my pre-service teacher's beliefs are about teaching and learning mathematics? And how can I capture snapshots of that? And then how can I use that information to be a better math teacher educator and to evolve the courses that I'm using to help people learn how to teach mathematics. So you already mentioned whose work you were building on, but um, let's just make sure that we get out everything you want to mention. Were there particular, you mentioned noticing as a lens. What else is your article grounded in? So there are several contributors to noticing frameworks. And one scholar in particular whose work I'm drawn to is Lisa Jilk. She wasn't the first person to use noticing, but she does use noticing very effectively in her work with in-service teachers. Lisa's work is grounded in particular around how students are positioned and framed, and specifically, how can we look at students and frame them in terms of their strengths, their areas for growth, basic is asset framing as opposed to deficit framing. If you look in the article, you will see some of the more foundational work and authors for noticing as well. All right. So let's chat a little bit more about this drawing activity. Mm -hmm. Just tell us a little bit more about, you talked a little bit about that that was part of your dissertation work. And then what are you learning from it? How are you implementing it? Those kinds of things. I've used variations of drawing tasks with every class that I've taught, um, whether it's a methods class or a math content class. And it's in part because there are students who get to shine in this task in ways that they may not in other course activities. And along with that, I get this window into how people envision things. I will say that my initial excitement in that very first pair of drawings that Cherie produced, and that was back in 2011, was tempered when I got the first full set from a whole cohort. Because what I realized was, first of all, not everybody captured everything as cleanly and clearly as Cherie did. And I had to do a fair amount of digging to make sense of things. And as you mentioned, yes, several times those drawings were laid out across the floor in my living room. So I want to be clear that if you want to use this as a tool for research, you know, it's like any form of research. It does take some time. You have to build your conceptual frameworks and your coding schemes and do all of that work. If you are using them as a math teacher educator, it doesn't take quite as much time because you're not doing your analysis to that level of scrutiny. But I would encourage you to really marinate with the drawings for a while because things start to emerge from them as you look at them as a set. And also, if you pick up an individual drawing and really resonate with it for a while, it's kind of like walking through an art gallery. Every time you pass through it, you're going to notice something new or different. So I know that well, the evolution of the drawings as well, we use two different variations. I'm part of a, the 2017 Service Teaching and Research Cohort, STAR, for AMTE, and I met two other scholars while I was there, Shannon Sweeney, who's at Northern Arizona University, and Chris Willingham, who is at James Madison. 
And the three of us have been working on a suite of instruments to try and get a sense of how people envision mathematics and what they think it means to be good at mathematics. And so we've used two variations on that task, and I believe you've used one of those as well. I have. One of, <laughs> one of them is to draw who mathematics is to you. And the foundational work there, that came from a paper that Dobbs asked us produced in 2015. So it's this personification of math, and it could be another person, um, some sort of, it basically has to have some sort of living entity quality to it. And then Shannon's work specifically around growth mindset pushed us toward drawing a variation on the draw a scientist tool, which is where a lot of these drawing tasks come from. That's good enough's work, and she started this in 1928. We ask our students to draw someone who is good at math. And then, again, with all drawings, it's very helpful if you ask the artist to write at least a brief description of what they're drawing and why, or point out salient features in the drawing. They want to make sure you notice all of these things. And this is in part because drawings don't come with dictionaries. We have to, it's a fairly interpretive form. We're much more comfortable, I believe, as humans with words and language. And so if an artist tells you in words what they want their drawing to mean, I think you can make stronger claims about that, especially if you're trying to use this as data. So I have two follow-ups to this question. The first one is I have used various versions of this task and I love using them in my class. I have not used them as much as an assessment potentially in the way you have. But what I have done, which has been kind of cool, is after I had my students draw pictures, I then put them all collectively on a PowerPoint and then debriefed with them. And that was really a cool way of just getting out some of the thoughts that people had. And some people like in my classes have drawn themselves like a really nice portrait of themselves, which is kind of cool. The other follow up, so this was a comment, not a question, but the question that I have is, I want to be a little bit more clear on your second drawing. If I understand the article right, do they see their first drawing and then they create a second drawing and comment on that? I think you could go either way. I would really encourage anyone who wants to take this task up. There's an appendix to the article where I talk about variations in implementation. I would say make this work for you as a math teacher educator and make it work for your students. And along with that, it's important to mitigate the fact that not everybody likes to draw. And so there are some anxieties about it. Encourage people to draw stick figures, whatever they need to do. I tell my students, I'm not putting these on my refrigerator at home. Don't worry about that. Just on the living on the bedroom floor, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then I will pick them up when I'm done. <laughs> Your art is very precious to me. And I, I say that with, I, you know, it sounds joking, but I'm actually sincere about that. Yes. When I'm asking people to create drawings. In some ways, they're sharing a little bit of their soul with me, and I, I really do take that seriously. That said, you asked this question specifically about the after drawing. Do students look at the first drawing when they draw the after drawing? And the answer is it varies. In the case of the study, they did. They had access to the first drawing. And so what you'll see if you go to one of the appendices has all of the drawings from this cohort, except for the one person who asked to be exempted. She really was uncomfortable sharing her drawing. So we just okay. kept it out. Yep. And so what you'll see is that there are themes that go from the first to the second drawing that make a lot more sense when you understand somebody had access to their first drawing. It's useful to compare 
what you drew at the beginning with what you're going to draw at the end if you're using this as a reflection tool, which is one of its most important and powerful values. Take a look. This is what you were thinking when you started the program. Do you agree with yourself? How has your vision changed? And in the case of, I think he's called Eric in the article, you will see like the core idea of what brought him into teaching was that he wanted to open doors for kids to get into STEM fields. And he hung on to that in his after drawing. But by the end, he was like, well, it's not just STEM. So my job isn't just to get kids into a field that I valued personally, because he was a STEM person coming in, but the field that they value. So how do they envision a future career that includes mathematics? It's my job to help them get there. Yeah, as you were speaking, I remember this picture. There's like a pathway to a door that said STEM on it in Mm -hmm. the pre-picture. And then what wasn't the post? How did the post picture change on that one? Well, Yes, that's important, actually, because that claim about his vision at the end of the program comes more from the interview than it does from the after picture. Okay. The after picture actually shows his evolution as in his beliefs about the roles of teachers and students. So in the after picture, you see three vignettes from go from the left to the middle to the right. And you see this evolution from teaching as telling and, and learning as passive recipiency. And Eric came into the program as with a STEM background. He'd also been a tutor. So he was literally paid to sit and tell kids how to do math. And that was his understanding of what it meant to be good at teaching math. And then you see by the end this, he's off to the side. It's much more student-centered. So he's, he's shifting his role from telling to facilitating and the students are becoming much more agentic by the end of the picture. So this is actually a nice lead into our next question, which is what were the research questions that you studied to document the effectiveness of this innovation? So I'm actually going <laughs> to return to the article to answer that question Good. because there were four and I don't have them memorized, but I'll go ahead and read them. How did the pre-service teachers depict or describe the roles of students and teachers? If there was a central metaphor in the vision, did it indicate a core belief about teaching and learning mathematics? Which depictions were revised and which remained static? And were there problematic depictions in any of the after drawings? All right. So just let's um, just tackle uh, one or two of those. So what (laughs) did you find and how do you know you found that? So let's start with the darker side of it. In the article, I refer to it as stucknesses. I'm not sure I would still use that term, but it's in print and it's out there. You know, like if somebody comes into a program and they really think the job of a math teacher is to tell kids how to do math, and they still think that at the end of their teacher education program, that's a problem. It means, and it's it's a great problem to have as a researcher because it's data it's a not great problem to have as a math teacher educator because it means that I haven't successfully done my job in preparing that person to go out and teach. So I did find one especially striking case of that in this data set. And it made me wonder, my own reflection then as a math teacher educator, because part of the problem for this pre-service teacher was that he had a, he had a cooperating teacher who was reinforcing some problematic beliefs he had that this pre-service teacher had about, I think I'm referring to him as Ian in the article. So Ian believed that he had really, he had some strong deficit framing 
for kids who were put into low track math classes in his pre-service teaching placement. And he had equally problematic beliefs about kids who were in high track placements. So the kids in the high track classes were getting student-centered inquiry-based instruction. And in the low track classes, they were getting worksheets and repeated lectures. So whatever the lecture was in their algebra class, they would come to this support class and the lecture would then be repeated for them. And this was being modeled by his cooperating teacher. So upon reflection, I thought, well, how might Ian's experience have been different if he'd had a different cooperating teacher? And this is most definitely a problem of practice that all math teacher education programs face. How do we find cooperating teachers whose visions of teaching and learning align with the vision that we're trying to help our students understand and step into as newly minted teachers. So that's one of the darker sides. On an upside, I'll just go back to how did the PSTs depict or describe the roles of students and teachers? There's just so much lovely stuff in there. And there was so much creativity in terms of how people were drawing, what it meant to learn mathematics. And one of the cool things that popped out of it was the use of the light bulb for the aha moment. And I suspect that that's kind of a metaphor that you'll see popping up if you use this task, because you don't have to have a lot of drawing skill to depict a light bulb. And it's sort of usually universally understand as the moment understanding takes root in a person. So this leads nicely to our wrap up question, which is how do you see other people using the innovation? And you already talked a little bit about everybody should use it the way they see fit, but maybe you can give a little bit of guidance. Sure. I would direct back again to one of the appendices does have some guidelines for ways that I've used it, ways that Jeannie Lithcote, I mean, it gives the backstory about why Jeannie Lithcote created it and how she created it. One of her gifts to me was a a large stack, five binders of (laughs) years worth of people's quintessence of teaching, of drawing. So I have a a large vault of data to go back to if if I want to at some point. So I guess I would just say, if you find drawings compelling, this is a great task for you. I guarantee you that some, if not all of your students are gonna find drawings an interesting departure from a lot of the formal academic work that they do. And this is a great place to elevate and to show this is this is truly is a low floor, high ceiling task. And so it's a way that we can model for our teacher educators, as we do in so many ways, how you can be using these kinds of tasks with students. In fact, I, got, I had a conversation with one of my doctoral students yesterday, who is also a math teacher educator in our program. She got an email from one of our recent graduates who was asking her permission to modify one of her classroom tasks for his own students. And so the ways that we use these tasks in our classrooms, they can propagate out for our own graduates as well. Before we started recording, I mentioned to you that I'm currently teaching a class with a blind student. And I was wondering if you have any thoughts for how we could accommodate students who may not be able to see with a task like this. You also described to me what you had done in the accommodation. So I'm going to repeat back to you what I understood. And you can validate for me if I've got it right. 
one of the things I've been stressing throughout this interview and, and do stress as well in the article is that drawings are highly interpretive. And so it is very useful to have words, whether it's a, a verbal interview that you audio record or a written description. And I will tell you that a brief written description is worth an awful lot of an MTE's time. So I highly recommend asking people to include a written description of what's going on in the drawing. And what I remember you telling me was that you had your students write a description. In your case, it was the personification of mathematics, I believe. You know, and written descriptions can easily become verbal descriptions and vice versa. So if we want to modify this task for, especially for accommodation purposes, yeah. I mean, there are, a picture is worth a thousand words, but you can easily create a thousand words or some other variation of it. I would love to see an interpretive dance. <laughs> so as you were talking, I was thinking, because I'm sure most people know this already, but I didn't know how to use the alt text to put a picture description into slides. And one of the things that I saw my daughter do yesterday is she's submitting homework now online is that for math, she has to explain her reasoning, but she can put a voice explanation into her math worksheet. And so actually, that would be kind of cool rather than a written description, have them draw a picture and then record a voice uh, description of the picture because then you get a little bit of their own voice with it rather than just a text. So thanks for the idea you just gave me by reflecting back <laughs> to me what I thought I was doing. <laughs> Before we close up, is there anything else that you would like, like if people use this task or if they're interested in the work, how can they contact you or is there anything else that you want to say? I would be delighted if people wanted to use this task or something related to it. And as I mentioned, I've been working with Shannon Sweeney and Chris Willingham and we have other publications on other uses of the drawing. I am, as I say this to you, quickly flipping through the MTE piece to see if my email address is on it someplace. It should be on there. Okay. So I would say emailing me is probably the fastest way to be connected with us. And your email is also linked to the podcast so people can find us. Yeah, send me an email. I'll send you stuff or we can have a conversation about it. And one of the things that I believe MTE is trying to do is figure out a way for people to be able to talk back to authors if they have used their in interventions. I'm not sure exactly where that's at, but if anybody wants to use it, it would be nice to hear from that, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I would very much like to hear how this goes out into the world. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And um, for further information on this topic, you can find the article on the Mathematics Teacher Educator website. This has been your host, Ava Thanheiser. Thank you for listening and goodbye.